the literary order, the order that John writes things up, is not necessarily the order of the events about which he writes. You just can't assume that. You have to be guided by the material itself. And if there's indications, as I think there are, that the second coming is being described several times, then that itself is a clue, okay, now we're gonna go back and we're gonna look at the thing from a second angle and then a third angle. Welcome to The Blessed Podcast. I'm Nancy Guthrie, author of the newly released book, Blessed, Experiencing the Promise of the Book of Revelation. The book of Revelation begins and ends with a promise, a promise that those who hear and keep what is written in this book will be blessed. And we want that blessing, don't we? So that means we need to hear what this book has to say to us and then figure out what it's going to mean to keep it or live in light of it. On this podcast, I'm having conversations with people who can help us to hear it, to understand its message to us and help us reckon with what it's going to mean for us to live in light of that message. And my guest today is Reverend Dr. Vern Poitras. Dr. Poitras, thank you so much for helping us um, get a better understanding of this book of Revelation. Well, Nancy, thank you so much for inviting me. And I'm excited about what you're doing. So uh, I'm hoping that this podcast will enhance it uh, still more. But I know you've written a book that's coming out and uh, it looks really good to me. So, uh, and, and you know, it's for ordinary people. I'm impressed with uh, how it communicates to the ordinary person and the person who struggles. Many of us, I, I think you're quite right, many of us are afraid of the book of Revelation or feel we can't understand, and uh, that's not true. Uh, if the Lord is with us, then the message uh, in, its, uh, in its big picture is available, is open to us. Well, that means a lot to me, Dr. Poitras, because I have such deep deep and profound respect for you. Uh, Dr. Poitras is the Distinguished Professor of New Testament Biblical Interpretation and Systematic Theology at Westminster Theological Seminary, where he has taught for 44 years. I imagine, Dr. Poitras, some of our listeners haven't even lived for 44 years. um, one of the first books of yours I read that was very significant to me when I was just beginning to understand Christ through all the scriptures was your book, The Shadow of Christ in the Law of Moses. Um, of course, probably more regularly, I benefit from your work from being on the translation committee for the ESV, including what you wrote for the ESV study Bible, that wonderful part in the back, the history of salvation in the Old Testament. I can't tell you how much that section helped me when I was writing my Seeing Jesus in the Old Testament uh, Bible study series. Um, But I think most likely, though I wouldn't have known your name at the time I read this, that probably the first book of yours that I read was your book on Revelation called The Returning King, which you wrote in 2000. 
And I picked that up the first time I was asked to teach through Revelation in 2006, I think. And I have to tell you, I was totally intimidated by the idea of teaching Revelation and your book was one uh, of the resources that really helped me. So thank you for that. And here you are now, and you are daring to do it. I'm glad that the Lord has helped you to get to this point. Thank you, Dr. Poitras. You wrote in that book that many people either fear the book of Revelation or have an unhealthy interest in it. Talk to us a little bit about that. Yeah, well, the fear, I think, most people can identify with because the visions are so odd to um, a modern reader that they think, I can't possibly understand it. But Jesus is the, the one who brings it to us and Jesus knows our need. Uh, the, the unhealthy interest, the, what I'm thinking of is the people who think that they've got some secret clue so that they can calculate the date of the second coming, which the Bible itself says you can't know beforehand, or they find secret messages within the book of Revelation, or they speculate about the details of the second coming, and they spend, as it were, you know, half of their Christian life just trying to puzzle things out. And my message is partly, this is not a puzzle book, it's a picture book. It's not something that we just calculate from, but it's something that is intended to move us with the big picture of Christ's rule and God's plan for history. So for our conversation, Dr. Poitras, I have picked seven terms, mostly from your writing on Revelation that I want to work our way through. And as we do that, I also want to hear from you about specifically the structure of Revelation. I, I was really helped as I was writing Blessed to come across a, a resource that you've made available online. People will find it in the footnotes of my book that has a number of different ways to outline Revelation, which is, I think, maybe the first challenge to understanding Revelation. So maybe we should start there before we dive into my seven words or terms or make that one of them. And that is structure. Why is understanding how this book is organized or put together, why is that essential if we're going to understand Revelation? Well, I think many people who try to read through the book, when they get somewhere in the middle, they feel, I'm lost. Yeah. Uh, it just be, becomes overwhelming because they're given, God has written it up, one vision after another, and they lose track of, you know, it's just too complicated, they feel. But I compare the book of Revelation to a beautiful cathedral or a beautiful piece of music that is carefully structured. It's been thought through by God and, of course, through a human author. It's also, it's so rich that you can't absorb it all in one sitting. You know, if you want to listen to a really complex and beautiful piece of music, you want to listen to it several times. And similarly with a cathedral that is really impressive and it takes time to absorb it. Well, it's more that the book of Revelation is, is well-structured and the structure that I would start with 
if I'm trying to introduce it, is the cycle of judgments, each of which leads up to the second coming. The second coming is obviously such a big theme in the book of Revelation. The book is meant to stir us up with a desire and prayers for God to return in Christ. Uh, that's so obvious a theme, but as you read through the book, there are actually seven different points that describe different aspects of the second coming. And they're the, so that what I call the cycle leads up to the second coming, and then you start over again, but from another angle. And you move forward to the second coming, a second time and a third time, and actually seven times altogether, at least as I see it. And you know, if you read commentaries, you will see, yeah, they disagree. Uh, but the language of the second coming, the first time that it occurs, is where the sixth uh, seal, actually, where the, the kings of the earth and the great men uh, say that the wrath of God is coming and who can stand uh, because it's coming. And the, the language of the sixth seal is the language of, of the signs of the second coming. The moon turned to, to blood, the sun become dark, and those are associated elsewhere in the Bible with the second coming. So I think that's already the second coming actually at the sixth seal. Now the seventh seal is a tricky thing because it's a kind of pause of a half hour silence in heaven. But I think that's basically uh, the silence before God appearing in the new world. Now that's complicated, but certainly the language of the second coming in the sixth seal I think is pretty clear. Well, then you have seven trumpets that are blown, and that leads up to the second coming. The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and the time for the dead to be judged. That's already in chapter 11. And then there's a series, this is more complicated because it's not numbered, but there's a series, I think, of seven symbolic histories. That's what I call them. There's the woman who is a symbol of the church, there is the dragon who is a symbol of Satan. There is the beast and the false prophet who go together, but they are agents of Satan. There's 144,000. It's a church again, but this time depicted in, in sexual purity. It's basically the purity of, of commitment to God alone as the bride. Uh, and uh, then there's a series actually of three angelic announcements but then you come to the vision of one like a son of man who comes on clouds. Well, that's clearly the second coming language again. But that one is more difficult because the series of histories is not numbered. But then there come seven bowls and those uh, uh, with them, the wrath of God has ended. There were seven seals and then seven bowls. And you're saying in that interlude, what is it, 12 to 14, there is a seven there that we could identify, but it's just not numbered. That's correct. Okay. And that's always a little more challenging. And you could, again, you can dispute, well, combine some of the visions or, you know, separate them and you can get six or eight. But it does seem to me there's a certain logic in saying there's seven symbolic histories, then seven bowls, and those are numbered. And then the seven messages about the fall of Babylon. Now the fall of Babylon is a judgment that is connected with the second coming and is connected with the vindication of the bride. The Babylon is the unholy city 
The bride is the holy city, the church, and those two sides are two sides of a kind of single complex. So from Revelation 17 to 19, you're saying once again, we could look for seven things there in regard to the fall of Babylon, even though they're not numbered. Uh, that's right. And it's, uh, it would be the fifth cycle, I'm sorry, because the sixth cycle is then, that's clearly the second coming because it's the rider on the white horse who has identified as Christ. So that's the second coming. And then you have the millennial passage. And then we have the white throne judgment in chapter 20, verse 11. So that constitutes altogether seven cycles and all of which have to do with leading up to the second coming. Well, though by the time you get to the latest cycles, you, uh, you're already at the second coming from the beginning. You've shown us how we can see these sevens within seven in these judgment cycles. How else is seven significant in this book? In the Bible, sometimes the number seven is just a number. <laughs> but, there are times when it has symbolic significance, when it's loaded. And it depends on the kind of literature, it depends on the context, it depends on paying attention to how God is communicating to us. But the start of it is pretty obvious. It's the six days of creation followed by one day of rest, right? God works six days and then rests on the seventh day and that becomes a pattern for human work and rest, leading what? To the final rest of the new heaven and the new earth. So the number seven, almost from the beginning of God's story, can have a significance of a cycle leading to a, a final uh, stage. And it's a number of completeness, sometimes people say. So it's fitting that there are lots of sevens in the book of Revelation because it's a, it is a book about how God is going to wrap up history. It is a book about completion. And, and there are a lot of other symbols in the book of Revelation. It's the kind of literature, and your book gets into this, it's a kind of literature which is visionary. A vision is not a photograph. It's, it's not just a one-to-one -one correspondence. There's a vision, for instance, in chapter five, you, you know, Nancy, uh, the vision of the lamb with seven horns and seven eyes. Well, it's identified as Christ. Well, that's not a photograph of Christ. It's a symbolic representation. I think John was really given a vision that looked like that, but it's to show something about, well, about the, the knowledge of Christ, right? The seven eyes, they're all knowing. The seven horns, that's power, that's all powerful. And he's a lamb because he was sacrificed to give us deliverance from our sins. So. So the book of Revelation as a whole sets a context where many things are going to be symbolic. And the number seven is an obvious one. So it's the number of completion, but it's no wonder then that there are these cycles of seven things and the seventh one, by the time you get there, you, you are at the second coming. All right, so lots of structures in terms of sevens, but structure also in terms of recapitulation. It is a term that if we're really going to grasp revelation, I suppose we have to reckon with a bit. It's certainly when we're trying to figure out how the book is put together and specifically, are we reading a chronological presentation of, of how things are going to be brought to a conclusion 
or are we reading something that perhaps is not chronological? So talk to us a little bit about recapitulation. Right. Well, if, as I think, the second coming is already being described in the sixth seal, then what's the rest of the book about? <laughs> the sixth seal is it's chapter six. So, so what's the book going to do if you've already arrived at the second coming? The answer is that it's going to cycle through the same time period or, or really the later parts of the same time period six more times. And you say, why in the world would anybody do that? Because each time you're looking at it from a different angle, a different perspective. Each time you're emphasizing something different about God and his rule of history. The symbolic histories, for instance, what you're seeing there is the depth of the conflict, that there are evil powers that are opposed to God and his kingdom, and that those powers have to be taken seriously by Christians who are in a struggle, who are going to be persecuted from time to time, who are going to suffer from time to time. And so that is a very important part of the book, but it's unique to that cycle that it sort of digs underneath the surface to show you Satan and the character of Satan and to show you the beast in order that Christians would be equipped to live in a world where we're being attacked by spiritual forces. So th that shows you just one of the angles that the book of Revelation uses as you go through these seven cycles, each of which leads to the second coming. I think we're not used to reading that in the Bible, but I, I think the illustration I use in the book is something we're very familiar with, and that is like instant replay when we watch a sports game, a professional or college level football game these days, they've got so many camera angles on the same action. We watch it, some big play, and so then they show us a, a different camera angle where we can see who really had the ball in, in, the, in the big pile up, that kind of thing. And in a sense, that's what we mean by recapitulation, right? We're, we're going back and we're seeing it again from another angle. That's actually an excellent illustration. I hadn't thought of it as parallel, but it's very helpful. And another thing I think to realize is that there are some actually some places in the Old Testament that do a similar thing. The book of Daniel especially. There are several chapters that are over, covering overlapping periods of time. And so the, the precedent is already there in Daniel and some, some degree in Zechariah and Ezekiel, all of which have quite a bit of visionary material. So I think those things in the Old Testament prepare us not to be shocked. The other thing about this is that the literary order, the order that John writes things up, is not necessarily the order of the events about which he writes. You just can't assume that. You have to be guided by the material itself. And if there's indications, as I think there are, that the second coming is being described several times, then that itself is a clue, okay, now we're gonna go back and we're gonna look at the thing from a second angle and then a third angle. All right, let's talk about holy war. You, you talk about revelation in terms of being holy war. Both that and spiritual warfare, that might seem really unfamiliar 
distant to us. Maybe even some people are uncomfortable with the idea of holy war. So why do we need to reckon with the whole notion of holy war in the book of Revelation? Already in the Old Testament, there are passages that depict God as a warrior. I think we've got to wrestle with it. And you're singling that out as I think a, a wise thing because human warfare is so ugly, right? People die, they're injured, they're maimed. There's hatred between the warring parties. It's so bad. We think, how could God possibly adapt <laughs> that kind of language without compromising his own holiness, without compromising his own goodness? But the answer is there is evil in the world. It has come in not because God himself is responsible for it, but because Satan has rebelled against God. That was the beginning. And of course, Satan tempted Adam and Eve. And now, let's face it, we ourselves, every human being except for Christ, is contaminated with this same evil. And it has to be abolished. It has to be destroyed. And the thing about God's war is that it's perfect war, that it doesn't hurt, you know, the innocent people who are sometimes caught in the crossfire, right? God is all-powerful and is able to discriminate perfectly between good and evil. So we've got to completely change our kind of emotional attitude. It's right that we should be horrified by war in human terms because it's, it's so destructive, even when it has to be done because you're fighting against uh, you know, a protective battle of some kind. Even when it has to be done, it's not nice, it's not pretty, and there's going to be collateral damage, right? But God brings a perfect destruction of evil, and that is exemplified at certain points in the Old Testament, for instance, with the fall of Jericho. That is a symbolic picture of the final fall of Babylon and the final destruction of evil. So we've got to see that the, the, final, the source of evil is not simply human, but is supernatural, is with Satan and his agents, and they're real. Some countries of the world know this better than the United States does now because they're dealing, basically they're into idolatry and and there are people who are trying to manipulate the spirit world and they get themselves into this whole area. So that Satan and his agents really do exist. And, and part of the message of the book of Revelation is these, these agents, these spiritual beings are real, but also that God is real and that his kingdom will triumph and that he is in complete control of events even before the end because it's he who basically depicts what Satan is going to do even before he does it. It makes sense to me that the book of Revelation is going to present us with a, a final conflict because if we think about the Bible as one story, you know, it begins in Eden and we get to Genesis 3.15 and, and we're presented with the whole crisis which drives the rest of the story of the Bible where we're told that that God has put enmity between uh, the woman and the serpent, between her offspring and his offspring. 
but it tells us that one of her offspring is going to come and he will crush the head of the serpent, but in the process, his heel will be bruised. And so we expect conflict. We're, we're, we're not surprised throughout the Old Testament as we see this conflict between her offspring and the offspring of the serpent. And so I think one of the things that helps us with Revelation and, and this war is to recognize this, this is the culmination uh, God is finally dealing with the evil that's had its way in the world for for so long, and now it's finally destroyed. And I almost feel like John, and certainly the divine author, recognized that we are going to need some help to accept what might not on the surface to us seem just, because it's so interesting to me in Revelation, we, we have coming off of the lips of the believers in heaven, they are celebrating the justice of God. They don't, they don't see this warfare and those who are destroyed in the midst of it as a problem that somehow diminishes God or his glory. In fact, it's just the opposite. They, they take hold of his justice and, and use it as cause for praise. Yeah, and I think that's in every human being. We're made in the image of God. There is a longing for justice. The trouble is that justice will mean our destruction because we're, we're part of the problem, each of us, right? And that's why Christ had to come. He had to be a substitute. He had to bear the wrath of God. It's very serious, God's justice is. And instinctively, because God made us in his image, we know that. It's simply that gets messed up and distorted by, by human conceptions of justice that are not in line with God. One of the things about this is we see a preliminary form of it also doing Jesus' earthly life because he cast out demons. And many people, again, from the Western world, essentially, we're not used to that kind of thing. And it seems, is this real? You know, is, it, is this shocking? But, but what's happening is you're seeing this element of spiritual war. You're seeing people who are captive, like the gathering demoniacs, for instance, they almost become subhuman, right? The one that's described is out there and he's naked and he's living in the tombs and it's just terrible. And God, through Christ, delivers him. Well, that's a picture of deliverance from the kingdom of darkness. Colossians 1, you, I know you will recognize the passage. He has delivered us from the kingdom of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of his dear son in whom our sins are forgiven. So it's for forgiveness of sins because Satan is the accuser and who says you're guilty, guilty, guilty. We're delivered from his kingdom, the kingdom of darkness, into the kingdom of, his, of God's son. Well, that's real for every Christian, but it seems that the book of Revelation wants to expand that and is, as you're saying, it's anticipating the final battle in Revelation 19 where Christ appears and all the forces of wickedness are subdued or put to shame. We look forward to that day, don't we? <laughs> Let's move on to counterfeits. I read about this a little bit in your book, but I, I, I think I, I footnoted in my book a larger article that you wrote in a theological journal that, that really helped me with this in terms of counterfeits in Revelation. Tell us about that. 
There are three major uh, evil figures, Satan, the beast, and the false prophet. And they are counterfeits. They are kind of reverse images of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. There's also a fourth figure, uh, namely the worshipers. The Babylon is the corrupt city of worship and the bride of Christ is the city of true worship. But the, there's a counterfeit trinity, right? Father, Son, the Spirit, one God. But then that's counterfeited by Satan, the beast, and the false prophet. And Satan is like the planner, the instigator. The beast is a kind of counterfeit Christ who wants to have the nations under his allegiance. And the false prophet is a counterfeit of the Holy Spirit and the witness of the Spirit that's a witness to Christ. The false prophet likewise witnesses to the beast. Well, to me that's fascinating, but there's a lesson in it. Once you see what Satan is doing, that he's imitating God, but in a perverse way. I use the language of counterfeiting to try to capture that because a counterfeit, let's say a $100 bill, right? A counterfeit $100 bill has to look like the real thing or nobody will be deceived. Similarly, Satan has to do things that are sort of like true religion and that are sort of like the true God or nobody will be deceived. He is the arch deceiver, so he is, he is promoting the worship of false gods, right? And those false gods are always enough like the real God to pull people in. That's part of the, the seductive aspect of what Satan is doing. It's helped me to understand false religions because there are always some good things here and there within false religions. There are always some things that make you think, well, wait a minute, isn't that like the Christian faith? So how do I know that the Christian faith is the true faith? Well, that's exactly what Satan is going to do. There's some things that have to be close enough to the truth, like the $100 counterfeit bill. <laughs> So I think it helps us to understand the, the work of Satan. Let's go on to what you call bipolar contrasts. Uh, and, and you uh, outlined three of them, that in Revelation we see the bipolar contrast of purity versus corruption, of beauty versus ugliness, and truth versus deceit. So when I read those, I think mostly... Uh, when we get to Revelation 17 through 19 in regard to Babylon? I think it is there with Babylon, but it's there throughout the book. I like to make a comparison sometimes to 1 John and to the Gospel of John. But 1 John, because it's short, it's very easy to see that it's major themes that are these bipolar things, darkness and light, yes, love and hate, faith and unbelief. And those go all the way through the, the uh, letter, 1 John. And sometimes I think we have problems reading that because we don't say, well, is there no gray area? <laughs> right? Aren't there, where, where am I in this picture? Because I'm not completely pure and I'm not as bad a sinner as I could be. But all you're giving me is the options of you know, complete darkness and complete light. But the point of it, I think, is not to say that, that uh, things are visibly polarized within this world completely, 
there are all kinds of people who seem on the surface to be in between, and we ourselves, because we're not yet made perfect. But it's to show you what are the principles involved, what's the underlying force of the conflict. And once you get clear about that, then you begin to identify things. I've used the example of some of the TV ads. There are some ads that are just cute and good, but there's some of them that are seductive that say, if you buy this kind of car, then you will have the woman sitting in the car, right, who is a beautiful woman. <laughs> it's not said in so many words, but it's saying, you buy our product and you will be satisfied, you know, with a kind of divine satisfaction. Well, once you see the black and white conflict, once you have it identified through the book of Revelation, then you can go to that ad and say, I know your trick, <laughs> right? I know what you're trying to do and I'm not going to go that way because God is the ultimate source of satisfaction. So it's actually, this polarity is actually a very important interpretive grid that God uses to teach us, to teach us about what are those basic principles. It, it strikes me when I look at those, I, I, I realize that um, what strikes me about this is I think about John's being given this vision that's coming to him from God. So he's being enabled to see things as they really are. And so that's part of what I, it seems to me creates the contrast because, you know, that that we might look at what, let's say, Babylon, and I'll put that in air quotes, Babylon, the world around us has to offer. We look at it and it seems beautiful to use your categories. Um, and it's as, as if John is being given the perspective of heaven to look at those things and he sees its its true nature and, and can see through the glitter that might look beautiful on the surface, but see more deeply into seeing its ugliness. And he would also see through uh, its truth claims into, into deceit, to use your category. Yes, and the, the Babylon the prostitute is a good example. I, I mean, I, I realize women have to sort of make the reverse adjustment, but for a man, you know, the, the, the prostitute is described with, she's decked out with gold and jewels and pearls. She is, she is offering you wealth and beauty, but underneath it's abomination. And, and the book of Revelation spells that out and saying, you know, holding in her hand a golden cup full of abominations. So it's warning you that this is a counterfeit. All is not as it seems. Yeah. Okay, another uh, key word or idea in Revelation you write about is witness. Witness. Um, it's it more than once the book of Revelation talks about Jesus Christ, the faithful witness. Christ is the number one witness himself. And he's a witness by his death and resurrection. And that's an important message for Christians who are followers of his. Because we are then, well, in John, the author is a witness. And there are the prophets that are witnesses. But then every Christian is called on a subordinate level to be a witness. How so? 
by confessing that Jesus is Lord, that he is uh, reigning. And uh, that's, uh, that's a dangerous thing to say in the Roman Empire because the emperors uh, claimed to have virtually divine power. So there was a conflict and uh, th the threat was that you would be persecuted if you confess Christ to be Lord. So that witness was a witness to the reality of Christ's reign in a situation where you might be martyred for it. You might die, but your death would imitate, in that respect, Jesus' death. Now, he alone, Jesus alone, atones for our sins, but a martyr's death is in some ways an imitation of Christ. And the message is partly, you, you too will be vindicated, right? The death is not the end, even though it looks like a defeat. Well, this is a tremendous message for Christians under persecution. Sometimes in the Western world, we don't appreciate it in full depth because it's other countries where Christians are, are under the most serious pressure. But still, uh, even in the West, the lesson is don't find yourself compromising the faith, uh, but stand for it when it's hard to do. John puts out a really a strong call for bold allegiance to Jesus Christ, doesn't he? And he, uh, I mean, from the very beginning, he calls them, the, the people he's writing to, partners in the patient endurance and the kingdom, the tribulation that are in Jesus. And so uh, he, he, this book is a call to, um, this book is a call to bold allegiance to Jesus Christ that results in proclaiming boldly his kingdom in the world. Right, yes, and it should be encouragement to us, but I think also encouragement to pray in Chris, for Christians in other parts of the world um, and, to be, to, and to be informed reasonably. There's a book, Operation yes. World, that goes country by country and tells how, how Christians are doing. And, and so it's a good source for, for praying for yeah. Christians in other parts of the world. Well, let's, let's get to our seventh final one, Dr. Poitras, and that is reward and punishment. And I'll just say I, I want one of those more than the other one, by the way. <laughs> uh, but what is the message of Revelation in regard to reward and punishment? Yeah, that is a serious theme in the book of Revelation. And again, I think uh, Americans, we are emotionally challenged here because we don't like to think about such things. Uh, particularly, I think we know from the Bible itself that we are saved by grace. It's not because of what we have done, not because of works of righteousness that God has saved us, but of his own mercy. That's Titus 3, 5. And so that's at the core of the message of salvation. But God also shows us that he's pleased to reward even imperfect works of Christians. It's a vast encouragement in a context like that of the book of Revelation where Christians are, are under persecution not to give up, not to cave in, to say there is a reward. God knows 
everything you're going through. He understands the suffering and he's there to supply the Holy Spirit, to strengthen you. So in a sense, the glory all goes to him, but he's pleased to reward when we endure and when we do hard things for his, his uh, namesake. And that message sometimes doesn't come out. Sometimes the message of grace kind of is allowed to overwhelm everything else so that it's as if our obedience doesn't matter. Well, our obedience does matter to God. It's not the thing that's the basis of our salvation. But it does matter, and God is pleased to reward that obedience. He sees every little thing that is done for the sake of Christ. So that's the reward aspect. The punishment aspect is for unbelievers. Uh, but in a sense, there is also the, uh, the fact that a Christian can suffer loss, not of his salvation, but of aspects of what he's done because it wasn't done on a proper foundation. That's 1 Corinthians uh, 3, talking about building the church and saying that, that if somebody's, the things he's built are burned up, he will have to suffer the loss, but he will escape as though through fire. It's not a question of salvation, but are the works you're doing solid? Are they based on Christ? Are they empowered by the Spirit, or are you just, you know, doing it for your own glory? And Christians themselves need to be challenged to, for us to be loyal followers of Christ, as you yourself have put it. And, and there, it makes a difference then in terms of God being pleased to reward or there being, the vice versa, there being no reward because your work wasn't solidly based. I suppose if we're trying to get at what the essence of reward is, I mean, because it's, it's not necessarily spelled out for us, and yet maybe in other ways it is. I mean, as we think about this promise of blessing the book began with, and seven times in the book of Revelation, we're told uh, about, you know, what, what it will mean to be blessed. Um, and then we get to the book, then we get to the end of the book of Revelation. And if, if, if Revelation 21 and 22 is, is spelling out for us what the reward is, and you can push back on that if you think I'm wrong, but if Revelation 21 and 22 is showing us what this ultimate reward is going to be, then it seems to me that by reward, we're going to enjoy this new intimacy with God, this inheritance of, uh, of a place, this uh, belonging to him, being a part of this multinational community, uh, be living in an atmosphere of pervasive holiness, and then perhaps the ultimate that we get in, in Revelation 21 is we will see his face. Uh, and then as we move into Revelation 22, this sense of such complete satisfaction. Am I getting at what the heart of reward is, or would you say it differently? No, I think that's right. And I think that the, the heart of reward is communion with God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. And, and uh, you, 
we get off base if we say, well, you know, I'll have this big mansion and you'll have a shack. <laughs> right? You're still thinking in worldly terms, right? Of how many toys, right? How many toys do you, have you accumulated? That's, that's a worldly way of thinking. So if it's communion with God, then there's no sense of envy of, well, you know, you have more than I do. But, but Jesus does say to store up treasures in heaven where no moth destroys and no thief uh, steals. So, so there is not only, I think it needs to be said, look, the basic reward is eternal life. The basic reward is entering the presence of God and enjoying him forever. And that is true for every Christian believer, for everyone who trusts in Christ for salvation. So in a sense, it's all the same. But then there are these other verses, and I don't think they should be shoved aside, that talk about this laying up treasure in heaven, and that indicate that, that every little thing that we do, you know, in genuine service to God, is uh, he's pleased to reward. Now how that works out in detail, I think it's unimaginable. <laughs> yeah. But but certainly I can see that if you have served the Lord with love and faithfulness in this life, your capacity to enjoy has grown. That reminds me of what a college Bible professor uh, said about this topic. And since then I've read this in Jonathan Edwards, so maybe he got it from him. But the way he put it was that for all of us, our cups will be full, but we may have different sized cups. Uh, yeah, yeah, that's a good, good yeah. statement. Yeah. Well, Dr. Poistress, this has been so much fun and such an honor and privilege to get to talk through Revelation with you. Maybe, maybe let's end our conversation this way. Would you give us your one or two sentence summary? If somebody says, boy, the book of Revelation, I don't know, what's that book even about? What's your... What's your one or two sentence? This is what Revelation is all about. God rules history and will bring it to its consummation in Christ. Mm. That's it. God <laughs> rules history and will bring it to its consummation in Christ. And I tell people, and you know this, Nancy, but, but uh, I'm reminding others. I tell people, look, if you read the book with that message in mind and ask the Lord to help, you will understand it. Yeah, you won't be frustrated, uh, I think, right? Yeah. Thank you so much, Dr. Poitras. This has been The Blessed Podcast, a Crossway podcast hosted by Nancy Guthrie, author of Blessed, Experiencing the Promise of the Book of Revelation. I hope you'll join me for the next episode of The Blessed Podcast as we seek to hear and keep what is written in the Book of Revelation and thereby experience its promised blessedness. Mm -hmm.